Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good morning, good morning. I am so pleased to have the opportunity to introduce you to Elliot Shodoff. Elliot, if I'm pronouncing your name correctly? Very good. Okay, I'm introducing you to Elliot Shodoff this morning. Elliot is a political and military strategic analyst specializing in Middle East conflict and global war on terrorists. I met Elliot in Israel last month when I was attending a graduate course titled Terrorism in Israel. However... That's not what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be talking about uh, Elliot's soon-to-be-published book, Know Your Enemy, Know Yourself. So, um, Elliot, let's, uh, I think um, the listeners want to hear a little bit about you. Uh, you're, I know you're a major in the Israel Defense Forces in the reserves. And, yes. Yeah, reserves. And um, you've, uh, you're a home front command, senior commander's graduate. And yes. I don't know, I know you, pardon? Yes, I'm also an infantry tactician. An infantry technician uh, and... Ta- ta- tactician, I, I, I wrote, I co-authored the tactical manual for the Army's infantry and paratroops. Okay, and now you're serving as, and I don't, I don't know what this is, but you're serving as a population officer in the operations branch of IDF, what is that? Um, I, I wear a number of hats, as many, many reservists do, um, and my, my official position deals with um, population management during disasters, both natural and military. So uh, one of the things that, that we're very careful about and our neighbors are not is how to protect our population, again, primarily from... Uh, from dangers as a result of war, our enemies aim at our population, and we spend a great deal of time, effort, and energy doing our best to protect them. And and as I experienced when I was there, and um, the presentation you gave, uh, that was very clear, very clear. Uh, it, the, Israel sets a very high standard for the rest of the world when it comes to uh, protecting their, their citizens. We try. So, yeah, well, you, you do a great job. And so, but you were born in the United States, is that correct? That's right. I'm originally a New Yorker. Um, I went to, I grew up in, in Queens. I went to high school in Manhattan. Went to college at Stony Brook out on Long Island and grad school at the University of Chicago. And I've been I've been living in Israel since 1983. And what made you decide to move to Israel? Um, I'm Jewish. I went. The school that I went to was a religious Jewish school with a very strong Israel Zionist component. And when I was 16, I visited Israel for the first time, and it all sort of came together. And I said to myself, "Yeah, this is it. This is where I want to live." Uh, it took another 11 years to put it all together, but that the decision was when I was 16. Wow, that's amazing. And and right now you're in the middle of, are you still writing your Ph.D. dissertation? Correct. 
Um, Tell us a little bit about that. Sorry? Tell us a little bit about that. Um, I'm writing about um, what would be loosely classed as terrorist organizations, but today the term terrorist is an inadequate term. In other words, if we were talking about terrorists, I don't know, 30 years ago, 20 years ago, we'd be talking about classical terrorists, people who blow up buses and take hostages and that sort of thing, and they're still doing that. But now overlaid on that, we have terrorist organizations that are also military organizations, like our our in-close adversaries Hezbollah and Hamas, but taking it out from from that area, uh, ISIS, al-Nusra, the Taliban, and even al-Qaeda are not classical terrorist organizations anymore. So mm-hmm. what I'm what I'm investigating is how that change has also changed their their overall strategic behavior. So, for example, they've become not more moderate but more prudent for themselves. They don't launch every single attack they possibly can. They're looking for they're going basically in two directions for much more high value targets because. They know that retaliation against them is going to hurt, and they want to get mm-hmm. more bang for their buck, so to speak. And the other mm-hmm. direction they're going to, and this is what we're seeing both in Israel and in the United States today and in Europe, uh, is more decentralized. I hate the term lone wolf. I think it's it's a very bad term. They're not lone, wolf, lo- lone wolves, but they're decentralized in the sense that they're low-value attacks but they're so low value that it's very hard to retaliate in a reasonable fashion against the organizations. So what they're doing mm-hmm. in, in, in the strategic literature, what they're doing is called planning around deterrence, doing things that will not elicit, elicit a, a retaliatory attack. So interesting. It's, it's, you know, it's, uh, worldwide, it's, just, it's fascinating to watch, disturbing and fascinating all at the same time. Um, uh-huh. But this, they've certainly been effective, and and we will continue to try to figure out a way to address it worldwide. Yeah, well, there um, we've seen over the decades. I mean, ter- terrorism goes back, at least in this form, to back to the '60s, um, and basically what we've seen over the past half century is how flexible they are in their operations, in part because they don't have a really strong strategy. Now, if you don't have a, if you don't have a strong strategy, you can actually be much more flexible in terms of what you do, because mm-hmm. for them, the attack, the attack is what matters. So whether they attack an right. airplane or a bus or a mall or a school or a passersby, passersby on the street makes no difference to them. As long as they get as many people as possible. Right. Yeah. 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 Well, it's um, it's certainly disturbing, and I'm I'm glad there's somebody like you on top of it, Elliot. That's uh, and knowing about it and being able to communicate to others on your analysis of the situation. Um, and I appreciated uh, the information you gave us um, on our trip. So it's uh, thank you, thank you. 
Thank you. So today, though, uh, you are in the process of writing a book, and you're, you have a sociology degree, and it looks like you're using your sociology degree to apply to um, the, the knowledge you have about people to apply to your book. Let's talk about that. Okay, well, yes, in part it is the sociology degree, but it, it's, it's a combination of that and strategy. Um, the title, or at least the tentative title of, of the book, is a quote from Sun Tzu's Art of War. Um, know your enemy, know yourself. He he wrote various translations of what he wrote, but if you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. And he goes on to say, if you know one and not the other, then you'll end up 50-50, but if you know neither the enemy nor yourself, you will succumb in every battle. And the idea actually came to me on, on, a, on the way back from China. Uh, I had been in China a few years ago, giving a lecture to the Chinese um, to the Chinese army on Sun Tzu, which was a story in and of itself, a little surreal, what was a nice Jewish boy from New York doing in China, lecturing the Chinese about Sun Tzu. Right. <laughs> right. Um, and, and his application to counterterrorism. Um, but the idea started to come together. By the way, the, the Art of War is a very short book. It's only 6,000 words. It's about 20 pages long. So okay. uh, this is this, the, the, the idea of knowledge is, is central not only to, to the book, but to, to a lot of ideas of strategy. And it occurred to me that in the West, less so in Israel, in Israel I think we, we've got a better grip on it, but in the West in general we know neither the enemy nor ourselves. In other words, mm -hmm. we, we're, we're not defining, defining who the enemy is. And I'll give you a, a simple example. Um, and I, I read all the time about the war on terrorism. There's no war on terrorism. You don't fight a method. Terrorism is a method. Uh, mm -hmm. It would be like saying in World War II, we have a war on German aircraft. Right. Uh, or German tanks. Uh, terrorism is, is a particular method of attacking your enemy. Um, so we don't know who the enemy is. We're not defining who the enemy is. We're not focusing on who the enemy is. We're not clear to ourselves why we're, why we're fighting that enemy, and we get into all sorts of irrelevant side peripheral debates over things like what is terrorism and what isn't terrorism, which is kind of interesting academically, but has very little value in focusing on fighting the enemy. Mm -hmm. At the same time, we're not defining who we are. In other words, why are we fighting? Is it only to stop them from blowing up buses or flying planes into office buildings? Or is there something more than that? And there's a great deal of confusion. Um, is te if, if terrorism is treated as a crime, then there's no enemy. Okay. It's criminal. Okay. Hmm, I have to process that. Go, go ahead. I'll, all right. Let me, let me try to put it into um, kind of what-if terms. After... The Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. Franklin Roosevelt didn't say we're going to find the pilots of the planes and bring them to justice. Uh, you're right. Right? He said, essentially, we're at war with Japan. We're going to fight them and win. I mean, th those weren't his words, but that was his message. After 
George W. Bush said, we're going to find the perpetrators and bring them to justice. In other words, there's mm -hmm. no real enemy out there. There are some criminals that we have to find and, and prosecute. Interesting concept. Yeah, that, interesting. Uh, I mean, that switches my thinking in another direction. Okay. So, so who's the enemy? Okay, go ahead. And, and, and what are we fighting? The flip side of that is what are we fighting for? What's okay. what do we defend? Is it just is it just our lives and property, or is there something more involved? Do they does the enemy want more than just our lives and property? And I I contend the answer is yes. So there's there's a war going on, and we on our side are unwilling to recognize it, unwilling to define who we're fighting, and unwilling to define what we're fighting for. Under those circumstances. We cannot win. Hmm. Mm hmm So. And, go ahead. And, and, where, and, what, and what do you suggest, Elliot? I, um, when you've analyzed this, what are we fighting for? Okay, first of all, what we're fighting for are our values. Um, and, though, and, and we've let those slide more than a bit over the past years. Mm-hmm. Um, freedoms, yes, in part physical physical things like security and defense. Um, mm -hmm. But at least in the West, and certainly in the United States, the values that, that the society were built on and developed on certainly over the past century or so, um, but, but but I would go back all the way to the Founding Fathers. And what's actually happened, what I'm seeing is that because of the unwillingness to define both the enemy and ourselves, we're letting those values deteriorate as well. We're, we're permitting the enemy to dictate what our values should be. All right, so we're talking about some understanding correctly, values such as, uh, and concepts such as freedom of speech, freedom of freedom movement, of freedom exactly. to, to live your life. Correct. Okay. Exactly. And, and what, are, what is our enemy fighting for? Okay. So first of all, who is the enemy? And okay. the, there have been enemies, but the primary enemy today is a force that for lack of better term, I will call radical Islam, and it's a label, uh, and I, I, I think it's very, very important to start having said that, to say that it's not about Islam, the religion, it's not about mm -hmm. Muslims as people, um, right. and I can, I can say with certainty I have Muslim colleagues who use the exact same terminology that I use. So okay. this isn't about if they're Muslim, they're bad. No, that's not it at all. Um, we can trace a good deal of it back. On, I would say the, the overwhelming majority of it back to an organization called the Muslim Brotherhood and its writings and ideology. And 
here we get into a problem in the United States because of bad terminology. The problem mm -hmm. with the our problem with the radical Muslims is not their religious observance or what we would call in American terms their na the, the nature of their confessional behavior. And to be specific, uh, they pray five times a day. This is not a concern of anybody's freedom of religion. Right. Of course. They 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 eat. They have dietary restrictions. So do I as, as an observant Jew. These are between, in Jewish, um, in Jewish law or Jewish concepts, there are two categories of, um, of commandments. One between the person and God, and the other between people, between the person and others. Okay, and Elliot, let's, let's take, I'm sorry to yes. interrupt you. Um, I've been notified we need to take a quick break. Um, okay. So, uh, hang on to that thought, and we'll be back shortly with Elliot Shodoff. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call one 800 350 C-A-L-I. For a national association, Francie's Choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Elliot Sodoff is my guest today. We're discussing the content of his upcoming book, Know Your Enemy, Know Yourself. And Elliot, you were just talking about identifying, identifying the enemy um, and trying to define radical Islam that we're not really, ta we're not talking about personal religious beliefs, we're not talking about personal behavior as people live their lives, but more 
and I'll let you take it from there. Okay. So, as I started to say, it's not a perfect parallel, but I think it makes some order in the um, in the categories. In mm-hmm. in Jewish observance, there are two general categories of commandment. There is what is known as between the individual and God, and those are all the rituals that one observes, and that's basically true of any religion. There are also mm-hmm. the commandments between people, in other words, between the individual and others. And they are part of religion, but they glide into social observance. Mm-hmm. Uh, love your neighbor as yourself is between you and other people. Um, right. And so on. You shall not kill, you shall not steal between one and another. Um, Correct. What would happen if the commandment were not, you shall not kill, but you shall kill? Would Hmm. that fall under freedom of religion? Right. Interesting. Interesting thought. Okay. When we talk about religion in the West, we are usually, almost invariably, talking about the equivalent of the Jewish category of between the person and their God. It's the freedom right. of worship, etc. Now what happens when there's a political component to the religion? And, even more so, if an organization, and in this case the Muslim Brotherhood is the, the most obvious, an organization comes along calls itself a religious organization, but it's also a political organization. Mm-hmm. And as part of its political stance, essentially declares others as the enemy or the adversary. And you are one of those others. Mm-hmm. We're not relating to that. Because the minute we put a stamp of religion on it, we say, well, we, we're not allowed to touch that. Right, it messes with your mind. It does. It does. Now, because we we have we have learned our entire lives, in at least in the United States and Israel, that freedom of religion is the most important thing. Correct. And, so and it should it. be. Here again, as as part of the the history of the United States, it certainly is. America was founded essentially on the basis of people who were fleeing religious oppression in Europe mm-hmm. and, didn't, mm-hmm. and didn't want a system that was going to tell them what they had to do in terms of religious behavior. Right. But, they underst- but they understood their religious behavior as what they did in church. Okay. Okay, now an outsider, an outside force comes along and says, well, my religion says something different. My religion says that the my that my religious components are actually meant to be social and political, and part of them says that I need to expand it into other areas as well. And here, I, the, I think the best way to understand it is to look at the motto of the Brotherhood. And the motto. What is that motto? Okay, the motto. Their slogan, which was written in 1928, and it's still their motto today, is as follows. Allah is our objective. 
the Quran is our constitution, and, and this is very important. They take a religious work and they describe it in political terms. Okay. Okay. The prophet, meaning Muhammad, is our leader. Now, that's very nice, but Muhammad was not only a religious leader, he was also a political and military leader. Mm -hmm. Jihad, and this is a very important one, meaning holy war is our way. So here we are, a political force with an aggressive method. And the last, the last component that I don't think anybody in the West really can comprehend is death for the sake of Allah is our highest aspiration. Right. Yeah. And, and, we, and we can't comprehend that. You're right. Because death is not our aspiration. Mm -hmm. And when I when I teach both here and in Israel and in the United States, and I and I speak in in both places to professionals, military and civilian, I point out that as somebody who's an officer in the military, and I know U.S. many I have many many colleagues in the U.S. military, when you take your oath in the military, there's a line in there that, in one variation or another, says, and I'm, that I'm willing to sacrifice my life. But willing to sacrifice my life is not the same thing as it being my highest aspiration. Mm -hmm. Actually, to paraphrase Patton, my highest aspiration is to make the other guy sacrifice his life. So, Elliot, how does that square with the many uh, Muslims who do not ascribe to this radical theory? They don't. That's that's precisely the point. In other words, to, to say that it is a religion that is a problem of religion is a mistake. There are okay. many Muslims who don't ascribe to it. Right. There are many Muslims who do ascribe to it. Those are the enemy. They shouldn't be confused with the other ones. And it's hard for it's hard for our brains to separate that. Correct, because we see it once again in religious rather than political terms. The test is not whether they are Muslim or not. Mm -hmm. The test is mm -hmm. the test. And practically speaking, I don't have a good answer to the question of how do you apply this test. But at least let's start conceptually with understanding what the test is, and that is: Do they subscribe to that political philosophy that talks about jihad, that talks about universal caliphate, that talks about the need to conquer the world? Uh, which sounds a lot like fascism. Mm -hmm. and right. The fact that they put a religious overlay on it shouldn't impress us very much. Um, I don't. I don't know if you know this, but the German army, the Wehrmacht in World War II, Nazi Germany, the belt buckle of the German army uniform was inscribed with the words "Gott mit uns," God is with us. Okay, so what? It was a I religious did not know that. Yes. Yeah, I did not know that. Huh. Okay. So, so because it said God is with us, it became a religious organization? Of course not. It was a German army. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, United States money has in God we trust. <laughs> you know? That's right. Yeah, exactly. So, so money is a religion? Don't let that go there. <laughs> yeah. Okay. We won't go there. Right? But, but it, is a con no. it is an interesting contradiction, for sure. Yes. 
the organizations that we're facing draw their ideology from those sources. Now, I think there's an interesting, and here, here I, I, I will throw in my, my sociology background, I think there's a very okay. interesting sociological question of why are so many people subscribing to this ideology? Mm-hmm. And I don't have a good answer for that. I think there, there are answers, but not an answer that we've arrived right. at. There, there may be one, but I don't think anybody's found it. But at least let's identify who they are. You know, let me let me let me take another angle on the identification. Let's say these people for let's say for a moment they stop using terrorism as a method. Does that mean they stop being our enemies? No, of course not. It'll just be another okay. way to That's go right. After so in, in other words, yeah. the overfocus on method blinds us to who the people are that we're actually fighting. So, Elliot, how... Maybe this is a, a dumb question, but how would you describe who we're fighting? I mean, who is our enemy? Okay. Our enemy is easily defined in terms of groups, and I think we can start with that. The organizations are there. The fact that they draw their ideology from a particular source means that anyone who subscribes to that source ideology is at least suspect. But the obvious organizations are there, and, and countries, by the way. The, mm-hmm. the followers, we, we know who the followers of the ideology are. I mean, this is easily traced, and there's plenty of literature on it. And by the way, it, it has nothing to do with Sunnis and Shiites. Even though the Brotherhood is Sunni, there are plenty of Shiites who, who subscribe to it. Okay. Ayatollah Khomeini was, was, a, was a, a follower of Brotherhood ideology. So re, Iran is an extension of Brotherhood ideology, Iran's Islamic ideology. Through them, so are Hezbollah. Through them, so are the Houthis in Yemen. But that's okay. The, the other side is as well. Al-Qaeda, through them, ISIS, Boko Haram, Al-Shabaab are all followers of the Brotherhood. Hamas, follower of the bro- followers of the Brotherhood. I think that's a long enough list to keep us busy for a while. I think so. So, so what do you do, Elliot? Does, I mean, yeah, all of these, you know, it's, uh, I guess, my analogy as I'm thinking about it, these are like some of the terrorist groups in the United States, the, the militia yeah. groups and the various groups. How do you address a group like that, when there are so many? You, first of all, you, zero tolerance for anything that aids your enemy. Here again, go back to, to, to the last war that everybody understood clearly, World War II. Mm-hmm. Once, once that war broke out, once America was in the war, on December 7th, 1941. Could you imagine anybody being permitted to send funds to an organization that supported Nazi Germany? Right. We wouldn't. It would be unconscionable. Okay. Uh, Could you imagine anybody negotiating with Nazi Germany? Never. 
America. And we did both of those. Negotiated yeah. with Iran two years ago and gave them $150 billion hmm. to build ballistic missiles that can reach the United States. Yeah, that doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? No. And, and they say outright that's what they're doing. Mm-hmm. They make no secret of it. You know that, do you know that okay. every November, Iran celebrates Death to America Day? Uh, yeah, I have heard that. Yeah. So, people who, who say Death to America are rewarded with $150 billion. There's something wrong with this strategy, and I don't think you need to be you know, Napoleon or Clausewitz to figure it out. I think it happens because of the lack of definition, the lack of identity. And probably more importantly, the lack of understanding. Okay, I think that's, yeah, that, but that all comes in together. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, that is, that's so right, Elliot. And so, so when you say know your enemy, okay, so you've identified the enemy. What about us? Why don't we know ourselves? I think we've let. I think we've become sloppy. I think we've let it slide. Um, I think it's accelerating to a certain extent, and I'm. I, I'm. I, I'm an. I'm an American sitting six thousand miles away and watching watching it from a distance, and maybe that helps him. See, maybe maybe it helps him see it a little bit better. I don't know. Um, the. The growing intolerance to other ideas allows for those who are intolerant of our ideas to filter their way in as well. Mm-hmm. The, 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 the polarization of, of a society that basically says my battle with my political opponent, I'm talking about within the United States, is more mm-hmm. important than the values that America is built upon, and they're not just the rights values of freedom of speech and ideas and that sort of thing, but also civility, uh, things that, that America basically ran on. So that you when, know, yeah, one of my biggest complaints is people do not treat others with respect any longer. All all boundaries are off. Yes. So who? So what are we defending? Or maybe there's nothing left to defend. I don't believe that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But if we're going, if if we're going to fight something, we have to know again what we're defending. Um, we, you know, we're tolerant, and I think tolerance is important. Do we tolerate everything? Is everything tolerant? And here again, to to speak specifically to who the adversary is. Do we, do we tolerate honor killing? Do we tolerate sex slavery? Do we stand by uh, something that, that's being totally underreported, if reported at all, in the United States? The black sex slave, I'm sorry, the black slave markets in Libya. So how do you address, Elliot, um, I mean, it, you know, there's really two sides to this. It's the side of 
we shouldn't be getting involved in other, in a sovereign state's business, so to speak, and, or do we um, go after those areas where, where these abuses are going on and address them? So how do you square that? Um, I square it very simply. I, I, I think there there's a reasonable test, and of course reasonable tests are different from uh, absolute yardstick measures, but I think there is a reasonable test. If you have if you have a country if you have countries like Libya, Syria, just to name two, that really don't have much sovereignty. It's on paper. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Those are the places where trouble is going to come from. And you know what? If you don't solve it there, it's going to come to you. And you're beginning to see that already. Oh, we do see yes. that. We absolutely right. see that. Okay, so it's not just a matter of let's respect their sovereignty. I do think there are lines where even that could be crossed. We, did, mm-hmm. we didn't do it in Rwanda in the 90s. Um, Bill Clinton apologized later, but a million people were dead. Right. Um, so. Yeah, Elliot, let's, let's take another quick break. Um, okay. Elliot Sodoff will be right back with you. Stay tuned. News, opinion, Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call one 800 350 C-A-L-I. For a national association, Francie's Choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Elliot Shodoff is back with you. Elliot's major strength, in my opinion, is that he is a strategist. If you joined us late, Elliot is both a political and military strategic analyst. 
he specializes in Middle East conflict and global war on terrorists, and he's taken those strategic skills and applied them to personal behavior and how we handle uh, our enemy and ourselves. He has a book coming out called, at the, this point, know your, know your Enemy, Know Yourself. And so, I, just offline, uh, Elliot, I ask you to maybe uh, summarize what we've talked about, uh, the Know Your Enemy part, and maybe bullet points, and the Know Yourself part, so we can take away uh, something that we can apply uh, personally. Okay, let me start with with the know yourself. Um, let me say this: the the first step in developing any strategy is defining your objective. Uh, in this case, before the objective, I would say define once again who we are. What are the core values that we have that we are willing or must defend. And if I could just digress for a moment, I, but one of the things that I teach is, is just in general the issue of war and peace. And I often ask mm-hmm. my students how important is peace. And one, one at least always falls into the trap and says, well, peace is the most important thing. And I always smile and say thank you for contributing. But if you say that peace is your highest value, what you're saying is that there's nothing worth fighting for. Hmm. Right, because if thought. peace is your highest value, you trade for peace. So I mm-hmm. would say the first step, both as individuals and as a society, is to define what is more important to us than peace. And those values are both physical and social. They have to do with our economy, they have to do with resources, they have to do with security on the physical side, and they have to do with lifestyle. Would we be, would we be willing to be taken over and be told how we have to live in return for peace? I personally wouldn't. Mm-hmm. For so, sure. Okay, so those aspects of what make our society what it is, and in the United States, and in Israel as well, they include freedoms. The, free, the freedoms, independence, all those nice terms that we, we throw around, but that we really need to start believing in. Mm-hmm. That's what mm-hmm. we're defending. And any attack against them, and I, I would say foreign and domestic, I think needs to be fought, rejected, not, not necessarily fought physically if it's domestic, but fought and rejected out of hand. Well, and, and in addition, Elliot, we, we're taught from birth, probably, that anything worth having is worth fighting for. Exactly. Exactly. And, but mm-hmm. we have to define what those things are. And right. I think that discussion has gotten sidetracked. So I'm not advocating going to war for the sake of going to war. I think that, that's a, a really bad idea. But going right. to war to protect those things that are being threatened is a really good idea. That's, okay. that's in terms of who we are. In terms of the, of the enemy, we have to then ask ourselves, 
who is actually threatening those values and look a little bit ahead and say who is likely to threaten them in the not too distant future. Um, I think it's a really good idea to take those organizations out when they're still a long way off. And here again, I can, I can use the World War II analogy. Had the Europeans had the fortitude to take Hitler out in 1936 or 37, it would have been, been no World War II and it would have saved about 50, that's five zero million lives. Probably would have been mm -hmm. a good idea. Um, okay, so, so t take a given organization like the Muslim Brotherhood. How do, you, how, do you, how do you address that? How do you take them out? Okay, so the Muslim Brotherhood is, is not one that can easily be taken out because it's a widespread ideological movement. But it can be, its effects can be limited in the United States. In other words, recognizing that, and re recognizing that it is a movement that is antithetical to American values, it can be, its branches, its agents in the United States can be focused on, and their effects can be limited, if not stopped. And whether, that doesn't matter whether they are secular organizations or nominally religious organizations. There was one, at least one famous case of the Holy Land Foundation, um, where there was an act, actually a court case and they were determined to be supporters of terrorist organizations. I think that's a very high bar. Um, well, this, I mean, I know this is a naive comment, but isn't our government, our FBI, all the folks that are involved in law enforcement, isn't one of the things they're doing is trying to identify um, these radical folks so they can put a thumb on them? Yes, but they are at the same time being told that if you have the kind of discussion that we just had in this show, you're an Islamophobe and you need to go for counseling. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, All right. Look, we, we saw it with um, the, the, the Fort Hood shooter. He was right. showing there were all sorts of indicators that he had gone radical and nobody wanted to say anything because they were afraid of being labeled an Islamophobe. And which brings up, Elliot, how is that different in Israel? Because what, what has happened in Israel is everybody's on high alert. So, so this, say my neighbor was radical. Or I, I, I saw some indications. Who do I tell that to? What do you do in Israel about that? Uh, you, you contact the police and they check it out. Okay. And if it's a mistake, look, we, we would treat that. We had a, I, I was with some people today in the old city of Jerusalem, and the bomb squad showed up, and somebody had left a backpack, and they went to check it out, and it was nothing. But it's the same rule with a bomb squad as you would with the fire department, and that is I'd rather chase down a hundred false calls than miss the real one. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and, you know, and that's so, um, that's so against the way Americans are taught. Right. 
And I hate to say it, we learned it the hard way by watching buses blow up. Right. Yeah. And that should not be construed as my should not be construed as my wishing it on America. Yeah. I I mean, you know, (laughs) we grow up here uh, uh, with the concept that privacy is a very important value, and so everybody's supposed to protect. Um, protect their privacy. Uh-huh. And I agree. So, it is a very important value. Um, there's, but there are fine lines. Look, after 9-11, everybody who decided to, they wanted to get on a plane gave up their privacy. Mm-hmm. And... That, well, that's true. That's a good point. Now, once again, I think there are limits. I don't. I, I, I understand the slippery slope, and I'm. I'm an absolute believer in individual rights and privacy, and due process, and all of the above. And I think that that's critically important. And I think that there are, there are ways, and and too, too, too deep and far to go into uh, in this kind of a discussion. But there are ways of mm-hmm. making that slippery slope much less slippery. Mm-hmm. Uh, but everything's a trade-off. Everything's a trade-off, and I, I guess what I come back to is where do you even start? If I were king or running this country, what would mm-hmm. I do to address these things? Where do you start with that? You start with not so much internally, but externally, defining once again and clarifying who are the threats and shutting them down, but shutting them down totally and not tolerating their operating under any circumstances. And that doesn't necessarily mean going to war, but it might. It certainly means that on a much more comprehensive level than lip service. Now, I'll give, I'll give you another, mm-hmm. another example, and it's something that's going on right now. Um, there are Palestinian terrorists in Israeli prisons having been sentenced to life imprisonment for murder, in some cases, the murder of Americans. Mm-hmm. Those Palestinian prisoners are being paid a stipend by the Palestinian Authority, taken from tax money that's given to them by the United States of America. So your tax dollars... (laughs) Oh, that's crazy. (laughs) ...are being used as a stipend for terrorists who've killed Americans. I think that's a bad strategy. That's that's mind-boggling. There's a, um, a bill going through Congress now called the Taylor Force Act. Taylor Force was an American tourist in Israel who was killed last year. He was a graduate of West Point, an Army officer. He was killed by a terrorist. That terrorist's family is getting a stipend from your tax money. It's amazing. That's what, that's what I mean by shutting stuff down. And not because I, I'm familiar with it more so because it's here and I'm close to it. But it's happening in other right. places, too. 
can't even imagine how that even got started. I'm, you know, I'm sure it made sense at the time, but uh, yeah. And but but you know, in, Israel when you, does when you things. Look at it, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say Israel does things uh, similarly. Like for instance, the hospital in in northern Israel takes Syrian injuries and and treats them and sends them back to Syria. Uh, so it's kind of a similar thing. No, humanitarian no. aid to wounded is not the same thing as funding terrorists. Okay. All right. Fix, fixing the multiple injuries of a, pal- of a Syrian child who was wounded in an airstrike um, is not the same thing as giving a declared enemy country $150 billion for them to build ballistic missiles and to fund another terrorist organization called Hezbollah, which, among other things, is responsible for killing American Marines in Beirut in the 1980s. I guess, I guess what hangs me up is the word stipend. What does that mean? Is that ah, pennies? Is that... The Palestinian yeah. Authority, through its institutions gives money to the families of terrorists on a monthly basis. And okay. if, if a terrorist is in prison for life, meaning they've murdered somebody, that monthly allocation that comes from the Palestinian Authority is roughly eight or nine times the average income of a Palestinian in the West Bank. Okay. All right. That puts it in a different perspective. And so then, then we really are funding the terrorist activities. Yes. Not only that, you're giving yeah. them an incentive. Because if mm-hmm. I kill somebody and I go to prison to love for life, my income actually goes up nine times. And my family's taken care of. Right. Ah, amazing. I, you know, <laughs> it goes back to, you know... I get your point, but it, it seems so great, so overwhelming. And we're actually at the end of our show here. It's been fascinating, though, Elliot, having you on the show. Um, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and your expertise, and I'm really looking forward to when you get your book out. Thank you. Thanks and, for having uh, me. It's been great. Yeah, I hope to have another opportunity to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining us today, way um, way far away from California in Israel. And uh, uh, to the rest of you folks, tune in again as we declassify more real stories from not real investigators this time, but Elliot is an investigator, actually, because he investigates life. Every Thursday morning, noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific, it's Jazz Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks, Elliot. Thanks for listening. Thank you. You've been listening to P.I.'s Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel. 